In response to events around the situation of Mr. Navalny, we reached a political agreement to impose restrictive measures against those responsible for his arrest and sentencing and persecution. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard Joseph Borrell, the EU's foreign policy chief. He was announcing that EU foreign ministers this week gave the go-ahead for sanctions on Russian officials over the jailing of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. We'll talk about that and whether it will have any impact on Vladimir Putin in just a moment, as well as taking a look at more COVID-related trouble on the EU's internal borders. And later, stay tuned as we explore a big question. Should we all get used to speaking Euro-English? We'll examine whether English is here to stay as the lingua franca of EU institutions and Europe more generally, even though Britain has left the building. And if it is, what kind of English should it be? But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's welcome to Reem in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, everyone. Matt in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And uh, joining us uh, from near the European Commission's Berlimont headquarters, fresh out of a briefing, our Chief Brussels Correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. So listen, let's get right to it. I thought we would start by talking on Russia, also to draw on your expertise, David, your former correspondent in Moscow. And this week we saw EU foreign ministers give the green light for more sanctions against Russian individuals, probably Russian officials. We don't know exactly who yet in response to the jailing of Alexei Navalny. David, I wondered from your experience in Moscow, do you think any of this will you know, make any difference? Will it have any impact on Vladimir Putin, whoever they end up sanctioning? Well, we don't see any evidence so far from sanctions that have been in place, obviously, since 2014, after Russia invaded in the next Crimea, that this is a way to get Putin to back down. It'll add ammunition to the case that he makes and his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, that the West is against them. The EU is against them. They've got a federal Duma election coming up in September. And a lot of this is about squashing the opposition there, particularly Alexei Navalny, anti-corruption blogger turned politician who was in Germany, obviously to be treated for after an assassination attempt, but then defiantly went back to Russia. I think they were hoping that he wouldn't dare to do that, but he wouldn't stay away. And so he's in jail. And that put the EU in a really tough spot where it had to respond in some way. Now the debate is over you know, whether that response is enough, because they're talking about four to six individuals, prosecutor general, perhaps the head of the federal penitentiary service. But these are exactly the type of people who Navalny and his close associates have urged them not to go after. They would really like to see them target some of the billionaire oligarchs who have major assets in the West, who own prominent football clubs or parts of them. And absent that, to maybe take a look at European Court of Human Rights cases and go after the prosecutors, the judges, the investigators, not just behind Navalny's imprisonment, but many, many other demonstrators, protesters whose rights have been violated in the hopes that these folks don't want to be denied their vacations in Italy and France and would resist taking political cases going forward. Yeah, David, you spoke to some of uh, Navalny's aides who were in town this week as part of the effort to put pressure on the EU you know, where does the EU stand on some of those more, you know, going after the oligarchs and others? And, you know, what are the legal obstacles there? Why are they reluctant to take that step? They've had uh, legal trouble in the past. In fact, a lawsuit was brought 
against the Council of the EU actually over terrorism sanctions. And so they feel they have a high bar where they really need to have evidence that will hold up in a court of law about why they're targeting certain individuals. So they're reluctant to go after these folks who may have prominent names, but who can't be pegged directly as responsible for decisions by the Russian government. But this whole issue continues to quite divide the EU and embarrass them in some ways. Frankly, the high representative for foreign affairs, Joseph Burrell, we know had a disastrous trip to Moscow after foreign ministers met on Monday in what could have been a more triumphant announcement that they had you know, consensus on these sanctions comes out and says, well, we have uh, agreement that Russia is drifting toward becoming an authoritarian state. There is a shared uh, assessment in the council that Russia is drifting towards an authoritarian state and driving away from Europe. For a lot of folks, they just rolled their eyes at that. You know, it's been like this for quite some time. Yeah, Reem, what uh, do you make of the French position these days? One of the things that's difficult for us here in Brussels is that the French foreign minister, Le Drian, doesn't tend to talk much. He doesn't do a lot of the doorstep, uh, you know, the kind of chatty stuff that some of the other ministers do. He's very low profile, but obviously very influential, I think. Has France shifted on this from, you know, Macron's idea of some kind of outreach to Moscow? Where do you see France standing in all of this now? No, I mean, you know, Macron in his uh, very recent and, you know, quite frequent statements lately has time and time again repeated what he's been saying about Putin and Russia for the past two, three years, which is that he believes that, uh, first of all, there's a need to speak to Russia. And he, he constantly talks about the need to build architecture of security and trust. Now, what kind of trust he's talking about, I'm not quite sure. And no French official has actually been able to explain. That being said, the French government did take a strong position or the same position as the German government on Navalny. And then in concert with Germany and others, they imposed sanctions in response to what happened to Navalny and his poisoning. Are they going to continue imposing sanctions? That's an open-ended question, because let's not forget, Macron himself, as early as when he was finance minister, that is about six years ago, said clearly that he doesn't believe that sanctions work in the long run. They need to be part of a bigger push. And I'm not sure that we are seeing a very strong, blunt, bold push back against Putin and what he is doing. Mm. Matt, obviously, the topic that comes up in this context quite a lot is Nord Stream 2, the pipeline between Russia and Germany. You know, occasionally, normally after some outrage involving the Russian government, the call goes up for that project to be stopped. We know that a lot of European countries don't like it. We know that both the previous US administration and the new one don't like it. Do you see any prospect of any change there? And do you think the new US administration might be able to get kind of the Europeans more on board with a common strategy towards Russia than the previous one did? Uh, no and no. <laughs> okay, next question. I mean, everything that we've <laughs> seen this week just confirms what we already knew. We had a, a brilliant commentary in Politico recently about how the Europeans' foreign policy has actually died or died in Moscow. And I think that this shows it again that – Everything that they're doing is just completely pointless because at the end of the day, Putin has no incentive to change. These sanctions do not matter to him. And it's just something that gives the Europeans an alibi to say, look, we're imposing sanctions 
on a few Russians. Yeah, who have plenty of time to move assets around or do whatever they want to exactly. do. Exactly, and we'll be having this discussion again. And the Germans are not going to let go of Nord Stream 2. They have not done so despite the various poisonings that we have experienced over the past few years or the assassinations or even the annexation of Crimea and, and the war in eastern Ukraine. And not, none of that has convinced them to give up on this project. So I would be pretty shocked if, if they decided to do so now. And in terms of the U.S., the signals that we're getting out of the Biden administration so far do not indicate that they are going to push the Germans really hard on this front. David, any final thoughts from you on this? You know, just having the, the dual perspective of having lived and worked in Russia and now, and now living and working in Brussels. What Navalny's top lieutenants in Brussels, the point they were making is, look, if Putin laughs in the EU's face on human rights, if Russia laughs in the EU's face on the convention to prohibit chemical weapons, he's not going to be a reliable partner on climate change or any of the other issues that they've talked about reaching out and having any kind of agreement with him on. So don't trust him. Push for, in, in some hard way, as Reem suggested, again, keeping in mind the broader political context that this is about an election in September. Putin has been in office, we know now, past uh, 20 years, two decades. You know, voters do get tired of seeing the same faces. And so, you know, that pressure that they sometimes feel, especially amid a pandemic, you know, explains some of what they're doing and for domestic political purposes. And what can the EU do is really the question to encourage fair elections and making some space for those candidates to be able to run. But I think this argument that, you know, the Europeans need Russia or the West needs Russia to cooperate on these global issues are something of a fig leaf, because where is Russia really cooperating on climate change? Where are they cooperating in Syria? I mean, they're largely responsible for the disaster that Syria has become. I mean, you know, I mean, they've committed war crimes in the view of many people in Syria. So to hear Burrell say, well, you know, we, we need to continue to have this dialogue with the Russians and we can't close the door on them. It just sounds like a lame excuse because they don't have any better ideas. Mm. Okay, quick change of topic. Uh, let's kind of focus inside the EU now. And we have seen border checks reimposed by a number of countries as the coronavirus crisis has worsened again, particularly as we see new strains or, or variants of the coronavirus. Uh, Germany in particular has imposed these border checks, which have led to long tailbacks, uh, traffic jams at the border with Austria and with the Czech Republic. David, this is going to be a subject of discussion when EU leaders meet this week. Some of our listeners will be listening after that conversation has taken place. Is there much hope from the briefings that you've been attending today in the lead up to the summit of any change here, of any progress that might lead to an end to these blockages, which don't seem very European and which aren't meant to be imposed in the way that they're being imposed, according to what you know EU governments previously agreed? Yeah, there's not only not much hope, Andrew, but there's quite a bit of distress. And the feeling is that given the worsening coronavirus situation, it's funny, in different parts of the, the continent, you have quite a few countries where cases are down, but others where cases are up. More alarmingly, they're seeing these variants that have some leaders very nervous about keeping the borders as closed as possible. And so there isn't a lot of hope that this will lift after this conversation that's due to take place or in the near future. What they do hope is, of course, vaccines start moving. And as the pandemic situation eases, the tensions will then relax as a result of that. Mm. 
Matt, how is your Austrian soul feeling about uh, these border controls being imposed? Well, I would just note that the Tyrol situation is interesting because the transit route that runs through there the, over the Brenner Pass is, is the main corridor between northern and, and southern Europe also for trade. So there, there are real kind of economic repercussions from this. And I think that it is driven largely by domestic politics in Germany, in particular in Bavaria, where the Bavarians have over the past year or so continuously blamed the Austrians for various things related to the pandemic. Well, sometimes not without cause. Sometimes right? not, not without merit. But I didn't think that it was a particularly European moment when the premier of Bavaria, Markus Söder, who many think is vying to become the next chancellor, said last week during his annual Ash Wednesday speech, looked in the camera and said, schöne Grüße nach Tirol, which means greetings to Tirol. And this was after they had uh, imposed these border restrictions. So he wasn't really putting his European bona fides on display. And Matt, how much of how much of domestic politics in Germany is at play here? Because something that is being pointed out to us is that, in fact, the border between France and Germany has stayed open, but notably Bavaria has imposed these restrictions. And there's some folks who say, look, this is actually the EU being subject to the shenanigans of German domestic politics with obviously a big federal election coming. I mean, I think formally speaking, it is the federal German government that has imposed the restrictions, but the interior minister happens to also be a Bavarian. And I think it's clear that the government in Berlin, which has come under a lot of pressure recently for its handling of the pandemic, they're clearly looking for ways to blame other people, as it were, for some of these missteps. So I, th I think the Austrian situation and the situation in the Czech Republic has been a good opportunity for them to do that. Hmm. Okay, we'll leave it there. I know that David has to dash. He still has to write a story for us. So we're going to let him go and do that. Thanks, David. Thank you. And thanks, Reem and Matt, who will be back a little bit later with some recommendations to get you through lockdown. Coming next, it might sound a little bit frongly to some people, a little bit denglish, but is it time to embrace Euro-English? That's in just a moment. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. Now, let's talk language. As you may have heard, Britain has left the European Union. But we left some things behind, and one of those legacies was language. English is now the dominant language in the EU, certainly in most of its institutions, and it's the second language most people speak across the continent. So it looks like English is here to stay. But here's the big question. What kind of English should Europe speak? We explored that topic with a couple of linguists this week. 
One of them is Marco Modiano, who argues in favour of recognising and developing a so-called Euro-English that might not always sound right to native English speakers. We have the uh, present progressive form of the verb uh, being used by Europeans, such as, I'm coming from Sweden. Now, you and I would think, okay, you're travelling in Sweden is the last country you're from. But you can observe Europeans doing this, and one person says, oh, I'm coming from Sweden. The other person says, well, I'm coming from Spain. You realise that what they were saying to each other is, I come from Sweden, you come from Spain. So their grammar, their Euro-English grammar, is that the present continuous can be used in that case. Modiano is a professor of English at Gävle University in Sweden. He's a dual American Swedish citizen and he argues that the European Union should embrace and define its own version of English as a kind of act of liberation from American and British varieties. We have this idea of a second language variety for Europe, that we have a a standardised form of English, punctuation rules, spelling rules, some grammar, some vocabulary, where we say this defines our English. When we do these things, we're not doing something wrong. And that's what I propose in my work, that we stop looking to native speakers, specifically the Americans and the British, for the standards of our European lingua franca. So we're taking the power away from the native speakers and claiming English because it is our language. And who would define that then? Who would say this is this is European English and this is how it, it, it differs from British English or American English? Well, many actors are involved, but I'm claiming in my work that it's going to have to be done by the European Union. They need to seize power. Okay, so they should take the lead on this? Absolutely, and say this is our spelling convention, these are the vocabulary This is how we put the period before or after the double quotation mark. We need to claim it and say these are the ways that we work with our language and not bother with what Americans and the British do. And that takes a bold action. Yeah. And would that would that involve perhaps saying, okay, this is not how a native speaker would use this word, but it is common across Europe to use it in this way. And therefore, that will be the way that we will use it in our English. Well, I mean, if we imagined a dictionary of European English, then it would look exactly like a dictionary of British or American English. It would say, this is what we do in America, but then there's usually another note under it that says in in Britain it means this. And so I think that we, we need to educate people to the meanings of terms in other speech communities. Mm. So what would you say to people, I'm sure you've come across them, who would kind of throw up their hands in horror at this idea of some kind of non-native speaker English becoming so common that the, and that the arbiters of that would not be you know, native English speakers? It has nothing to do with reality. It's like wishing that you had good weather. When you have a, people using a language in, in a nation state, they invariably make it characteristic for their social group. This is what always happens. So it's not a question of whether or not Euro-English exists. It's a question of how we respond to the fact that it is evolving. We have a second language English variety evolving in Europe. And, you know, someone is going to have to step forward and say, okay, let's break our ties with the tyranny of British English and the tyranny of American English and instead say, we are competent second language speakers. This is our language. This is our variety. And I think that will happen. It's just a question of when. 
tyranny is a strong word. I mean, do you see this as a, as a kind of a power, a, an issue of power? Absolutely. I see it as an extension of uh, neocolonialism. I mean, let's imagine that the European Union decided not to do anything at all. Well, then they would be leaving the issue in the hands of the market. And the Disney, Coca-Cola, Netflix, Apple, Google, those extremely powerful organizations will promote their culture, their style of behavior, their language throughout the world. And this has already been taking place for a good 20, 30 years now. And we see linguistic Americanization raging across Europe, crowding out British English. I don't think it's in the best interest of Europeans that we become a larger part of the sphere of influence culturally that's coming from North America. I think we need to have our own sphere of influence, which is European, which utilizes English, because that's what we're doing anyway. Now, that's one point of view. For a different take, our colleague Eddie Wax spoke with Jeremy Gardner, a former senior translator at the European Court of Auditors, who wrote a report a few years back on the misuse of English words in the EU. It reads a little bit like a cry for help from a native speaker, frustrated by interference from other languages, things like eventually being used when a native speaker would say possibly, or normally being used to mean something should happen. Normally he'll arrive at 8 o'clock, for example. Here's Gardner's reaction to Modiano's proposal. This idea that there is some sort of pan-European model is quite frankly nonsense. You go to Berlin and you get somebody off the streets and you get speak to them in English. They are not speaking anything that's remotely like what is being spoken by somebody if you go to Madrid and get them off the street. Apart from anything else, Gardner sees a lot of practical barriers to developing and implementing a Euro-English. So if one were to do that, which is it's, it's always possible, anything's possible, if you want to spend an absolute fortune doing it, which does not seem to be the way to go at the moment, they'd have to create some sort of grammar. They'd have to create dictionaries. They'd have to interfere with school curricula in the member states, which they're not allowed to do at the moment. And they would have to start teaching the thing, which is a lot of effort to go into when you've got a number of ready-made models available. Now, when we talk about European English, you might think of the jargon-filled jumble that's widely used in the EU bubble. Words like hierarchical superior, subsidiarity, the comitology. But Modiano argues we shouldn't get hung up on that or see it as defining Euro English more broadly. As far as the extreme forms that are used by uh, Eurocrats, some of those will succeed in growing in stature and in influencing the larger community, and some won't. But this always takes place in central governments. It's going on in Washington. It's going on in many places where people that are really tight in the bureaucracy of, of running government have lexical items that other people don't use or recognize. So that the, what's, what's really going on with the members of the European Union is not really the issue. It's more about accepting the characteristics of the common European, that they mm -hmm. have an accent, that they don't sound like a native speaker. 
Some of you may be wondering, why should any form of English be the common language of continental Europe? What about French, for example? Some French officials would like to see you return to the days when their language dominated in EU institutions, and they'd like to see it taught and used more widely across Europe. And this is where Modiano and Gardner generally agree. It's not going to happen. If we talk about the French, there our research shows very clearly that interest in acquiring French as a second or third language has been decreasing steadily for 50 years. As a world language, French is a very small language. The idea that it's a, it's a language of wider communication is simply not true. So if we, if we look at it in that way, that there aren't very many young people in, in Europe today that want to learn French, it's also the case that there are fewer people today who want to be proficient in three languages. And that's crowding French out as well. So we have more than one force uh, here. The idea that the European Union would be using French is simply not realistic. It's not going to happen. If the French insist, there'll be great resistance. And that is because people are putting their resources into to English and they, they don't have the time to put those resources into two languages. And this is because English is the global lingua franca. Gardner says the people of Europe have spoken and they've decided they want to speak in English. It's a question of democracy because the European citizen, as, as they like to call them in Brussels, or as we would say, the, the public, wants, can and does speak in English. If the EU, which it could do, imposed any other language as its main official working language, and this is possible, it would lose its main line of communication to the European citizen. Because the European citizen, if you said to them, right, lads, you're all going to stop learning English tomorrow and start learning French instead, and you can learn English if you want, but it will be your third language or the fourth language on the school curriculum, there would be hell to pay. And this is not just true of French, it's true of any other language, because, you know, why French? Why not German or, or whatever? So, with English apparently here to stay in Europe, Modiano says the important thing about any decisions about what form it should take is that they should be made without anyone worrying about what the Brits will think. The most important thing I feel personally is that the British are gone. There are no longer native speakers of English looking over our shoulder across the European Union. And it's time for the European Union to start committee work and to seriously enforce a understanding of where we're headed with the English language. And these standards should be our standards. Okay, so Reem and Matt are back with me now with some uh, recommendations to help get you through lockdown. Matt, do you want to go first this week? What's yours? Well, I actually don't want to go first. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I didn't no, no, realize no, this no, was I, I such a big deal, like the order. Okay, <laughs> dealing with these divas is not easy. Uh, Reem, would you like to go first? 
you know, I always have to, so I will. Ladies first. Ladies first. I started listening to this running conversation between Bruce Springsteen and those who know me and listen to this podcast know that I'm a big fan of of Springsteen. Mm. But he's having conversations in a Spotify podcast with none other than Barack Obama. And it's called Renegades, Born in the USA. I listened to the first episode. And I think... Once I'm done listening to the entire series, I'll give you my opinion. Okay, good. Well, I did notice that they were doing this, obviously, you know, motivated by the success of this podcast. They wanted to kind of take a bit of our turf. Exactly. So, uh, Matt, has that given you enough time to come up with your recommendation? Uh, Yes, it has. And it is actually related to today's interview. So, apropos, Mm -hmm. which is not an English word. (laughs) But my recommendation is connected to the English language. It is called The Story of English. Oh, yeah which is a series that you know I saw as a young whippersnapper. Was it in black and white? No, it was actually it was, it was in color. But it is about the history of the English language, and it is done by a man named Robert McNeil, who was a fairly well-known Canadian, actually, broadcast journalist who worked for American Public Television. Okay, good. I'm actually going to take a recommendation from a listener rather than making my own uh, recommendation. Uh, You're welcome to drop us a line to podcast.politico.eu if you want to recommend something you think that our listeners might enjoy. And uh, we got an email from Eve Fabant who says, Dear Political EU Confidential, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to suggest the following book, which contains a very entertaining mix of EU internal politics, the Brussels bubble, thoughts about the significance of EU integration, a murder investigation and Belgian surrealism. Enjoy. And the book he's talking about is Die Hauptstadt by Robert Menasse, uh, Austrian author, uh, which I have not read. I do remember we ran a piece about it a couple of years ago on Politico, and maybe this will give me the uh, push to read it in the uh, months ahead. So thanks to Eve for that recommendation, and thanks to Reem and Matt. Talk to you next week. See you next week. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you get every episode automatically. Please take a minute, if you can, to leave us a rating or even a review, preferably a good one. And you can always send any feedback to us directly as well. The email address, once again, is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Eddie Wax and Jules Darmanin, as well as to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>